Okay, welcome everybody um, to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. It's nice to see a full house tonight. Um, my name is Christina Musold. I'm uh, a fellow at the philosophy department here at the LSE and I'm also the deputy director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And it's a great pleasure um, tonight to introduce to you Jonathan Safran Foer, who most of you probably know um, as the author of Everything is Illuminated and also um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Sorry, I need to speak in the microphone. Okay, sorry about that. Okay, <laughs> so most of you will know Jonathan as the author of these two novels. His first novel came out in 2002, Everything is Illuminated, and um, it sort of dealt with uh, the search for his family history in Ukraine, for those of you who haven't read the book. Um, his uh, second novel, incredibly, um, uh, extremely loud and incredi incredibly close, dealt with the aftermath of 9-11, also extremely interesting book. Um, and tonight we're going to talk about his most recent work, which is actually a work of non-fiction, um, and is dealing with um, our relationship to food, our relationship to animals, um, the system of factory farming. And, um, well, I've just said that this is a work of non-fiction, but um, actually when, can people hear me? Yeah. Actually, when you look at the book, <laughs> um, although it's a work of non-fiction and it's grounded in a lot of um, extensive research and a lot of facts, um, my impression is that it's really still ultimately a book about stories. It's a story about ourselves, our relation to food, our relation to other people, our relation to animals, ultimately your relation um, to ourselves in a way as well. So I was wondering um, why you chose that particular approach to um, dealing with this topic. Can everybody hear me if I speak like this? You're so oddly it's positioned. It's so weird. It's microphones, Ooh. isn't it? <laughs> I might as well put them, you know, anywhere else. There's nothing, nothing makes great sense, but you can okay. hear okay? Okay. Uh, maybe if there are twice as many, it would work better. Anyway, thank you for coming. It, it really is nice to see so many yeah. people come out. Um, it is a, especially so many young people, because um, you know I didn't, I did not write the book for any particular audience, but um, we know that young people not only um, are more able to change. Um, their lifestyles, or rather there's, there seems to be a direct relationship, an inverse relationship between age and ability to um, um, change your lifestyle. Also, younger people engage with this subject, this particular subject, in a unique way. In America, 18% of college students describe themselves as vegetarian. There are more vegetarians in American universities than Catholics. Um, <laughs> so. That, that always gets a laugh. I don't know why. If it's the, maybe people are mistaking it for a Catholic joke or something. But um, I only know Jewish jokes. <laughs> my, my only point is it's exciting because I didn't write this book for no reason and I didn't write it to gratify myself. I wrote it because I think it's an extremely important conversation to be had. And in many ways, college, um, inst uh, um, places of learning, um, are the most important place, or one of the most important places to have the conversation. Um, so, yes, I wrote the book as a story. I mean, the book really is rigorous journalism. There's something like 75 pages of endnotes, yeah. and I was very rigorous about those endnotes. I had two independent fact-checkers check every fact. I used industry statistics 
whenever possible. I could have written a book that was far more persuasive if I just chosen different facts. Um, and you spent three years researching it as well, right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, but I don't think of it really as a, as a straightforward work of journalism or a straightforward argument or a straightforward work of philosophy, but rather, as you were saying, as a story. Um, both because that's how I ex have experienced this question or this problem of eating animals um, and because I th I'm convinced it's how other people experience it. You know, food is not just calories. Maybe at once in one time in human history it was something more like just calories when we would go to great, great lengths to find the next meal which would provide energy for us to look for the next meal. But of course that's not how we live now. And now food is always accompanied with some kind of story about ourselves, whether it's a very explicit story, like on this religious uh, occasion we eat this food for this reason, or we abstain from eating this food for this reason. Sometimes the storytelling is extremely subtle, but it's always there. And um, you know, it's worth questioning if we're telling if the foods that we're now eating are encouraging better or worse stories. A story is told when a family drives up to a McDonald's drive-through window, orders food, and everybody eats it in the car with the fingers of one hand. A different story is told when a table is set and at the end of a long day when people might actually desire to do other things they sit down at a table and eat over the course of an hour or two hours and use the table as a kind of uh, as a place to transmit other stories and other values. So I wanted to write a book that would have an effect on people. Um, I was giving a reading at a high school in America recently and uh, maybe a 15-year-old said to me, you know, your grandmother's at the beginning of this book, and it was really nice hearing those stories, and your grandmother's at the end, but she's not really that much in the middle of the book. Were you just trying to manipulate the reader? Hmm. And I said, yes, I was just trying to manipulate the reader. I mean, every author is always trying to just manipulate the reader. Uh, it feels perhaps a little different when there is an agenda behind the manipulation as opposed to just wanting to move a reader or make a reader laugh. Um, I was trying to move a reader. I was not trying to move a reader to vegetarianism in a straightforward well, way. No, I mean, in a way, the story you tell about your grandmother is that you know you came to see her as the greatest chef based on the chicken and carrots she cooked, right? So it's not a straightforward case for vegetarianism there. No, I think it is though a very straightforward case for for trying to engage with our values and find out. Um, you know, to what extent our values are being reflected in our daily actions. And if they're not, what ways can we bring those things into better harmony? Um, you know, my grandmother tells a story at the beginning of the book about uh, how at the end of World War II, when she was fleeing um, east toward Russia, the, the greatest danger to her was actually malnutrition. And at the very end, when she was beyond skin and bones but had sores all over her body and found it difficult to move, uh, a Russian farmer saw her condition, went into his house and came out with a piece of meat for her. And um, I said, well, he saved your life. This is great. And I was thinking, oh, we should go. I mean, this is a very classic American way of thinking about it. We should go find this person and give this person some money. But um, <laughs> it was literally the first thoughts through my mind. Uh, and she said, no, I, I didn't eat it. And I said, what do you mean you didn't eat it? And she said, it was pork. I wouldn't eat pork. And, you know, I wanted to reach across the table and shake her shoulders. Um, as my parents would do when I would put myself in danger 
as a child. It's very strange how the prospect of, of, your, of a loved one in danger inspires anger, but that's another story. Um, and I said, not even to save your life. And she said, if nothing matters, there's nothing to save. So I told that story because, not because the moral is that one should be kosher, but that the moral is we draw these lines in the sand. Everybody has a line. Everybody has many lines, in fact. Um, and our lines are dissimilar. You know, you draw your lines in certain places where I wouldn't, and I draw mine in places you wouldn't. But we have our own lines, and when we cross them, we risk becoming somebody else. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about food is that when it comes to food choices, we're actually drawing that line every day, you know, three times a day, four times a day, every time when we decide what to eat or what to buy in the supermarket, in a certain sense, we draw, we draw that line, right? Um, not only that, but it's, it's a resonant line. It's like a, 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 a ripple you know, in a pond because we don't shop in supermarkets that are empty. And we don't, rare, you know, rarely do we eat in restaurants that are empty. And at home, if we're lucky, there are people around. So um, you know, our food choices are observed. Um, a good example of this actually is, the, uh, or the, the effects of this ripple are, was the invention of farm salmon. So farming, farm salmon became quite popular when it, when it became obvious that salmon populations were declining and that we were going to simply run out of wild salmon if we kept eating it at this pace. So um, someone came up with a solution, which was we'll sort of create an artificial supply that is independent of wild salmon. What happened actually was that the um, pressure on wild salmon increased. Um, it's counterintuitive. You would think if there's another supply that's created, it would decrease right. the pressure. But what happened was the habit of salmon eating increased because salmon became more available. And when you're in a restaurant and the person next to you has a salmon steak on the plate and it looks good, you say, I'll have that. That looks really good. I'm going to have that. It's, it's very rare that somebody asks the person at the next table or asks the waiter, you know, is that farm salmon or fresh salmon? So. I find that this is actually, if you care about these issues, the most successful way to proselytize is not to proselytize. Just to make your choices, to not be ashamed of them, but neither to make a, any, an, an overly, uh, not to make an overly big deal about it. You know, well, I, of course, I mean, writing a book about it is a big deal. Is an overly big deal? deal. <laughs> 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 but right, uh, writers and, and humans are different. So, <laughs> you know, when I'm a human, I don't. When I'm a writer, I do. There are all kinds of things I do in my writing that I would never do in life, which is why when I finish a book, my parents often don't understand why that particular book came into existence. I remember when I was in college, the first book I ever wrote, which I didn't publish, was about, um, and I'm about to describe why, was about these Siamese twins, girls, and um, one of them had a, a sexual relationship with someone, someone who had my name, actually. And, um, and there's a very, very graphic sex scene with these Siamese twins. And I handed it to my father and I said, oh, isn't this amazing? I finished a book. And he read it and he said, where do you come up with this stuff? Why would you do this? So my only point is when you sit at the desk, you're, it's a different identity. Right. But it touches upon a, an interesting question, um, namely, food choices in a way um, are often seen as very personal. So people feel that you don't have the right to lecture them about them. It's like, it's my choice what I eat. You know, how dare you tell me what to eat? But at the same time, as you pointed out, these choices 
and personal in a way because they have these ripple effects and, and food is essential just to a lot of things and the choices that we make um, just have a, a lot of impact on a lot of different issues. So to what extent um, do we really have maybe even a moral obligation to talk about these issues even if they make us feel uncomfortable, even if people don't want to necessarily hear about them? I don't think there's any one answer to that. I think different people feel the obligation differently and different people have different abilities to enter into that larger conversation. Um, you know, something can be dead wrong and you might still not have the right to, um, you know, insert yourself too much into someone else's choices. Um, we can say, not because it's my opinion, but because it's fact that um, our food choices affect one another's lives and affect our shared future. You know, if we continue to eat these kinds of foods, we are not going to be able to use antibiotics in the future when we're ill. Um, I gave, you know, I didn't, my older son had to recently take antibiotics for a passing little nothing, which would have been a serious lasting something if we hadn't had antibiotics. We know the Union of Concerned Scientists, the Center for Disease Control, they've been pleading with the USDA for years, the, that's the United States Department of Agriculture, to stop feeding antibiotics to healthy animals. If an animal is sick, maybe it very well should get antibiotics. But we now give eight times the amount of antibiotics to healthy animals as we do to sick humans. And we know there's a direct link between usage of antibiotics for animals and our um, decreasing ability to use them for humans. So do I really want to sit back and say, eat your chicken nuggets, it's your business. And I'll just hope my kid gets over strep throat, you know, without medicine. That doesn't seem fair to me. It doesn't seem just in any global way. And similarly, what we're doing to the third world through industrial farming, it doesn't feel just to sit back and let, you know, relatively affluent people eat whatever volume of meat they want um, while it's having such, you know, disastrous effects on the third world. Um, that having been said, you know, what's the goal? The goal. And I can't imagine anyone not having this goal. The goal is to have a farm system that is less destructive and less cruel. Who doesn't want that? So we make different wagers about how to get to that to get to, to, get to that point. My impression is that argument is not a great way to get to a better system. You know, PETA has found that um, through certain kind of flamboyant um, techniques, they're able to reach about, let's say, two out of ten people. And that actually makes them probably the most successful ad advocacy group in human history. I mean, the fact that more people know of the animal rights group PETA than the bread PETA is pretty astounding. <laughs> um, but we will, not, we will not come even close to approaching a solution to these problems if we don't reach the other eight out of ten people. Um, I don't like it when people make me feel guilty about my own hypocrisies, and I have many hypocrisies. Mm -hmm. um, what I've noticed is that when I see my friends, you know, when I'll call a friend and say, hey, why don't we go out on Saturday? And he says, actually, I am, you know, volunteering at this local soup kitchen. That has a much greater effect on me and is much more likely to change my behavior than if my friend says, you ever consider volunteering? Because I see that you go to movies all the time. And you, <laughs> you, you do much, don't you think you owe it? to the world, right. then I would see a double feature that day just to spite my friend. <laughs> um, 
you know, I think positive role models are more effective than argument. But the interesting thing is that um, the, the role models do ultimately get us into arguments, don't they? I mean, so one thing that often happens, I don't, at least in my experience, I don't know how about your experience, but when you go out and eat with, with friends, um, it's not like you bring up the topic of vegetarianism or veganism. You just order something that doesn't happen to have meat in it, and somebody will pick up on it, and it will sort of hit a nerve, and hit a nerve much more than any other topic, strangely, which is also something uh, we might want to talk about why that might be. But oftentimes you then get into an argument about these issues without actually having intended to do that. Well, it is interesting why it hits a nerve. If you're at a restaurant and you were to say, do you have plastic silverware instead of metal? Your friends would say, why? And you would say, oh, because I prefer it. Or you could give a reason and they would think nothing of it. If you were to say to your friends, you know, I read this article about paper towels and it seems like we're wasting, you know, they're incredibly wasteful. I've tried to switch to cloth towels and it seems like a kind of good thing to do. Your friend will either take you seriously or not, but it's not going to provoke a fight. But like the hint that a suggestion about meat, often like everyone's hackles go up. Um, and I think it's because there's this kind of shared recognition that it matters. That it's not just talking about paper towels and it's not just talking about silverware. It is literally talking about life and death, right? There's no other way to think about it. It's the life and death of these animals. And I think at this point in time, in the year 2011, most people know the gist. Few people know the details, but most people know the gist of the environmental destruction. Probably some, most people know the gist of the antibiotics problem. Some people might know the gist of the avian and bird flu problems. And everybody, we can say, knows that if they're going to see a movie of a farm, that it's going to be a horror movie. And if they're going to see a movie of a slaughterhouse, it's going to be a horror movie. So um, these things matter. You know, sometimes I'll, at a reading, there'll be a question and answer session afterwards, and someone will stand up and just start going at it. You know, just, well, who do you think you are? And don't you do this? And don't you realize that? And haven't you been... We will have a question answer, by the way. Yeah. Later, and I hope you won't do it. I'm actually preempting that person right now. How foolish they would be to get up and do exactly what I did. But um, so sometimes that will happen. And I'll say, well, look, obviously we agree that this matters a lot. Because you wouldn't be hysterical now unless you thought it mattered a lot. Um, that doesn't make them happy when I say that, but it's true. Um, what can I say? I can say that I don't have social discomfort about my vegetarianism. Um, if you are, there are way, if you, it does require a certain sensitivity. And you might feel like it shouldn't, but it does. So if someone invites you to dinner, you have a responsibility to tell them days before, oh, by the way, I'm a vegetarian. I hope that's not a problem. Um, if you show up and the meal is served and there's meat and you say, I forgot to mention I was a vegetarian, well, that actually is annoying. That's your own fault. Yeah. You know, because you have actually put the person out if it's not the way that they, you know, cook and live their lives. Um, but again, now in the year 2011, which is nothing like the year 2008 or 2002, these questions were different then. In the year 2011, if you say to somebody, by the way, I'm a vegetarian, I hope that's not a problem, it's not going to be a problem. You know, and the person's probably not going to ask you why, because everybody kind of knows the reasons. It's, inter it's interesting that um, the prevalence of these topics 
you know, in public conversation and in media has changed so much over the last few years, right? I was talking um, to someone about that just before um, the event here, and one question that, that we had is whether this is just in some sense maybe even just a kind of a media hype because, you know, certain celebrities are not turning vegetarian or vegan. Bill Clinton is a vegan now, and actually Portman is a vegan, and Alicia Silverstone is a vegan, all kinds of other people. Is she a celebrity, um, though? But I mean, um, despite that, and despite the fact that, like you say, most people sort of know the gist of the arguments, um, you, you still get the sense that relatively little actually changes, or maybe your sense is different. I mean, do you think that we're really sort of on the way of a, of a vegetarian or a vegan movement, that you know, people are really changing, or is this just something that's uh, it's kind of popular at the moment, but it's not really going to affect people's lives in a deep way. I, I don't know if we're on the verge of any kind of vegetarian movement. I'm sure we're on the verge of a of a, redu a movement that reduces meat consumption, and that's the what, that's what's important, and that's what we should be aiming for. There's a real conceptual difference between imagining a world where half of the citizens are vegetarian and a world where half of the meals are vegetarian, even if the outcome is effectively the same. To me, the latter world seems very possible. I mean, I think we could even be on the brink of such a world. Whereas the, the, the first one I described, where people have to make, um, where it becomes a real shift in identity, can be more confusing and more, more difficult. Um, you know, I am, despite having very strong feelings about this, I'm obviously an incrementalist. Um, and when somebody comes up to me and says, I read your book and now I don't eat meat for dinner on Thursdays. You know, my response is not, that's it? <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you, crazy? Right. You know, it's, that's great. You know, because I think a lot of people are afraid of inhabiting this hypocritical space. Once you admit to caring about it, if you don't care completely, you are considered or you consider yourself a hypocrite. It's not a coincidence that if you tell someone a vegetarian, you're a vegetarian, the, one of the first things they almost always shoes. do is say leather shoes. <laughs> yeah. Or, but you walk on grass, or you swat flies, or what do you do if you have rodents in your house, you know? Um, there is this very strong temptation to push the conversation to the extremes and to the exceptions. What if you were on a desert island and it was just you and a cow? Um... <laughs> um Instead, we should be looking at the world in front of us, where 50 billion animals are factory farmed. Are there places in the world where it's impossible to grow crops and communities are dependent on livestock? Yes, so let's not talk about those places. Are there situations in the course of a year where people feel that meat is truly indispensable? Yes, you know, people sometimes say to me, my grandmother makes this ham on Christmas, and I'm sorry, I agree with what you say in your book, but I, I cannot not eat that. And I always say, how many times do you celebrate Christmas a year with your grandmother? One. And then I say, well, if you're, be, you know, as a thought experiment, you're being really honest with yourself. How many times a year, how, how many of the times a year that you eat meat would you say the meat is indispensable? And I don't mean in a literal sense. I mean, it's like really, really significant to you. So you might include religious occasions, you might include national holidays, you might include certain kinds of dinner parties, you know, where people are in town from out of town and, and you've gone to great lengths 
shopping and want to prepare a huge feast, you go to someone's house. If you were to add all of those up, you know, some incredibly nice restaurant that you traveled a great distance to, distance to visit because you heard the chef is amazing. If you were to add all of those meals up, how many would there be? I think if we're being honest with ourselves, the number is certainly less than 100 um, and probably less than 50. Well, we eat 1,000 meals in the course of a year, and we can't let 50 meals get us off the hook for the other 950. It's crazy. The temptation is always to look for the exception that will get us off of the hook from trying or to look at the hypocritical space that we would have to occupy, that everybody occupies, and to say, well, rather than that, I'm simply going to be willfully forgetful. I'm just not, not going to go into that in-between space. I think, actually, vegetarian advocates have been a large part of this problem because um, they have created a framework for discussing this so that people feel that there are only two options, that you're a vegetarian or you're a carnivore. And... Um, most people cannot envision themselves becoming vegetarian. This, this, this is, we know this because this is what the world is. I think that most people can envision themselves eating less meat. If Americans ate one less serving of meat a week, one less lunch a week, it would be environmentally the equivalent of taking five million cars off the road. That's a very, very powerful statistic. Um, if someone says, I can't become a vegetarian, okay. If someone says, I can't reduce my meat consumption by one meal a week? That sounds pathological. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like someone who, has, who actually has a problem. Um, so we should, I think we should start with that one meal, especially because action is contagious. Caring is contagious. It doesn't ultimately feel like a deprivation to eat less meat. Um, it feels good, and one is inclined to try it more and more and more and more. It's just the challenge of taking that first step. Right. I want to get to the environmental issues in a second, but um, first I want to stick a little bit on this point. I'm, I'm, I think I'm very sympathetic to that sort of approach, and, and I can see why if you take a more radical stance, it actually creates more problems than it does good. But at the same time, you know, sure, it's true. We're all hyper hypocritical at some level. I mean, partly just because society is the way it is and the world works the way it works, we can't be 100% perfect. It's, it's just almost impossible to be 100% vegan or, or something like that. Um, and so it's much better to care and to try to do your best rather than not caring at all and just say, well, you might as well eat as much meat as as I would like, you know, it doesn't matter anyway because I can't be perfect. But at the same time, I mean, don't you think that if you really care about the issues deeply, and a lot of vegetarians, I mean, we've talked about environment and we've talked about health issues. Um, what we haven't really talked about yet so much is the idea that maybe animals, because they're conscious beings and they can suffer and, you know, they have certain abilities that matter that give them, you know, moral relevance in a way, um, we have a certain responsibility. Maybe they have they even have some, some sort of moral rights. And can you then really compromise on that issue? I mean, wouldn't that be sort of similar to saying, well, you know, it's not great to abuse your child, but as long as you only do it once a week. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, I mean, to what extent can you really... No, it makes me very uncomfortable. Really <laughs> I mean, it makes me very uncomfortable. The thing that I always come back to is what is it that we want? Um, and what's the best way to get there? And what we want is is less animal cruelty. And by the way, it's also what farmers want. You know, farmers and animal activists are not at opposite ends of a spectrum. When I say farmers, I mean real farmers, not people who work in office buildings calculating how many animals they can pack in a cage. 
but the kinds of farmers who know their animals as individuals, the kinds of farmers who were all farmers in the world until about 60 years ago or 70 years ago. Um, I met numerous farmers who are members of PETA, actually. Um, in any case, you know, I talk about this in the book. Real farmers, people who are animal activists, and frankly, everyone else, wants the same thing. You know, we want less animal cruelty. Nobody wants more animal cruelty. Um, there have been a number of referendums on state ballots in America to phase out the worst farming practices, like gestation crates for pigs. These are tiny little crates that pregnant pigs are, are kept in for the duration of their pregnancy, so small they can't turn around. Um, and these always, or at least every so far, they have passed by the widest margin of everything on the, anything on the ballot, despite the fact that the that the meat lobby spends tens of millions of dollars to and and buys, you know, many ads, print and, and television ads, to try to persuade people to vote otherwise. But you know, just common sense tells us. Nobody steps into a voting booth, you know, the privacy of one's conscience, and says, I would prefer the pig, the pig in the cage. Um, so why then do you think that doesn't really translate into action at the same scale? I mean, okay, we have a growing percentage of people that are vegetarian. We have a growing percentage of vegetarian meals offered in restaurants. There's certainly a lot more options available, and it has an impact to a certain extent. Um, on the industry and on politics, but nonetheless, I mean, we still have these crates, we still have these factory farms, people still go to, you know, KFC or whatever, so if you say that everybody really ultimately wants the same, and most people have a gist of the arguments by now, why doesn't that translate into action? For a few reasons. One, because the, the distance between the gist and the details is enormous, and um, I think you, the the emotional response to the gist is very different than the emotional response to the details. I, speaking personally, I kind of knew the gist before I started this book. And I knew it was bad for the environment. And then I started this book. And I found out that the United Nations um, has said in a report called Livestock's Long Shadow, which is should be mandatory reading for the entire human race, um, 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 has said that Animal agriculture is one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet, locally and globally. So I knew it was bad, and then I just found out that it's the pits. You know, it's, it's the worst. That It's so bad that I couldn't figure out how I could think of myself as someone who cared about the environment while you know, recklessly eating factory farm meat. Um, I knew it was bad for animals. I didn't realize that there were more or less no alternatives, 99%. Of the, meat, of the animals um, raised for meat in America come from factory farms, and in Europe, it, it's anywhere from 90 to 95. Um, and, and those details, the devil is in the details. Um, you know, the farm industry goes to great lengths to perpetuate certain images of farms in our minds, like Old MacDonald had a farm, and there were all these different animals, and they were on grass, and there was sunshine, and pitchfork, and a barn, and none of that is true anymore. I mean, these are farms without human presence. Everything is automated. There is no grass. There is no sunshine. There are no windows. Animals are not eating foods that their bodies naturally digest. Their food is, you know, laced with all kinds of additives. In America, it's almost always antibiotics. It's often growth hormones. They have their appendages removed without anesthetics. I mean, these are things that nobody likes. But 
the industry has found ways, and also simply the speed of the change. You know, we haven't caught up to the change, um, but the industry has found ways to make us comfortable in these these lingering images of something that doesn't exist anymore. And it's hard to say no to something that feels good. Mm. You know, meat tastes good and meat smells good, and. Um, Humans all of the time say no to our cravings in the interest of our reason and don't experience that as a deprivation. You know, Most people think of sexual cravings as being stronger than hunger for food. And yet, you know, most of us have no problem resisting sexual cravings, you know, some of us every few minutes. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that's fine because that's what it is to be a human being, you know. There's often, the, the, you get a lot of this argument that, well, it's natural to eat meat. People have eaten meat almost everywhere, almost always. We were designed to eat meat. So what? Who cares? You know, first of all, we were designed to do a lot of things that we shouldn't do and don't do. Uh, and secondly, we were, you know, the sort of quintessence of our design is these big brains that we have. Um, this ability, which actually distinguishes us from the other animals, or seems to, to, um, act on our um, values against our cravings. And I would say nothing makes me feel more natural than saying no to something I want because there's something that I want more. Right. On this point of natural, um, it's actually an, an interesting argument. I think I completely agree with you that, you know, we sort of maybe designed evolutionarily to do all kinds of things or, you know, if you look at the animal kingdom, all kinds of things happen that, you know, we just forbid ourselves to do. But um, I'm wondering just like how natural it really is to eat meat. I mean, okay, most of us have grown up in families where meat eating is uh, a very normal thing and so we grow up with that and it feels natural to us and it smells nice to us maybe partly because of that. At the same time though, um, and I think you described that in your book actually as well, when, you, um, when a child realizes for the first time that what it's actually eating is an animal, like that's not so different maybe from the family dog, it suddenly starts feeling a lot less natural. And if we were actually forced to maybe kill the animals ourselves, would it still seem natural? You know, if we were forced to um, prepare them, kill them, and not just go to the supermarket and buy something that's pre-processed and pre-packaged, would it actually really be natural? Well, there are a lot of different ways of talking and thinking about that. That is a kind of philosophical question. I think the real world question is, you know, is it natural to eat these kinds of animals that are raised in these ways? So turkeys um, have been <coughs> bred to grow so quickly that they are no longer capable of having, um, of reproducing sexually. What is natural about eating an animal that is incapable of reproducing sexually? Um, you know, the, the, the point of nature is to reproduce, to spread genes, or I guess that's one way of looking at it. Um, you know, what is natural about an an eating an animal that cannot survive without being fed antibiotics from birth until death? What's natural about a food that we know is giving us heart disease, cancer, stroke, and diabetes? What's natural about a food that most nutritionists I spoke with uh, and most biologists that I spoke with, most doctors I spoke with, speculate is probably the reason that girls are going through puberty at ages 9 and 10 now. The reason that so many kids have so many food allergies. Um, this is not 
the the deer that the caveman got with his bow and arrow. These are 50 million animals that we're raising in the most extreme conditions. And they're the most extreme kinds of animals. These are Frankenstein animals. These are not animals that would exist in nature. If the pilgrims, you know, on Thanksgiving, we eat this turkey to commemorate the meal that the pilgrims ate. If they were to see the turkey on our table, they would, they would literally not recognize it as a turkey. They would not know what the animal was because its biology is just so utterly different. Um, you know, incapable of flight, incapable of reproducing sexually, incapable of existing outside for any prolonged period of time, and incapable of existing out of its adolescence because it grows so quickly that its bones start to break under its body weight. There's nothing natural about that. So what do you then say to those people who say, okay, um, I agree with that, but rather than advocating vegetarianism, why don't we just sort of um, ethically consume meat, consume meat that's from family farms, that's not from the factory farms? I would say that's a great idea if we stick to it. But if we stick to it, it means we're going to be vegetarians about 95% of the time because it is so difficult to find meat from small and family farms. I think small and family farms are actually wonderful places, and I think those farmers are heroes. And um, despite the fact that I wouldn't eat what they make, I, I, I really do understand. I, I sympathize very, very strongly with their intentions. Um, the strongest response, positive response this book has received has been from farmers. Um, but we have to be honest about it. It is dishonest to say I'm an ethical omnivore if what you mean is when I'm presented with the choice between factory farm meat and ethical meat, I'll buy the ethical meat. And when I'm not presented with the choice, I'll buy factory farm meat. That's dishonest. Um, to be an honest ethical omnivore would mean the only meat I eat is ethical meat. You know, by your definition of ethical, let's say. Some people would say there couldn't be such a thing, but by your own definition. Uh, and this is one of the things that is I find disappointing about a lot of the most important food writers or food thinkers uh, in the world right now is they're promoting something that they don't practice and they're being dishonest about what it would mean to practice it. Right. So um, we said in the beginning you've done an extensive amount of research for this book and like you said earlier, the devil really is in the details and you know people have the juice but you need to look at the details. So was there, I was wondering was there anything that particularly surprised you that that you wouldn't have expected. Could be either positive or negative, some, something that really sort of stuck with you in a particular way. I mean, as I was doing the research for the book, I, I became a very annoying person in my household because I would often track down my wife wherever she was and stop, interrupt whatever she was doing and say, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> you're just I know I said it last time, but this is crazier. Um, I mean, every page offered something I couldn't quite believe. You know, the most shocking thing about industrial farming is not, or my experience is industrial farming, it didn't take place on a slaughterhouse floor. It was not an act of violence that seemed outside of the, you know, realm of humanity. It was two things. One, the breadth of it, the fact that there are virtually no alternatives. Um, the scale of these farms. You know, you walk into one shed with 60,000 birds, you leave it and you see another shed and another shed and another shed, 18 sheds on a farm and one farm next to that farm and another farm next to that farm and it boggles the mind. If you just walk down the street one night in London and you look at everybody, you know, going to the market, carrying food, going to a meal and you think probably just about every one of these people is going to eat an animal or part of an animal. 
you can intuitively begin to take in the scale, and and it it, it takes your breath away. You know, it's depressing. Um, but the thing that was most shocking was that the system that we've created is intentional. It's not an accident. The and it's disingenuous to speak about it as an accident. The animal cruelty is not an accident. It's not because of defective machinery or masochistic workers. It's because we want it that way. Um, and when I say we, I mean the people who design these farms and the people who knowingly support them. Obviously, if you don't know, you're not to blame. But they design these farms in such a way that cruelty is inevitable. It is not the exception. Animals are bred so that you know about a third of chickens finds it virtually impossible to walk at the end of their lives, and two-thirds are in some pain whenever they're walking. Um, we know that we're removing appendages without anesthetics. There's no confusion. It's not happening by, by accident. We know that um, very many of these animals, virtually all chickens, um, experience their own slaughters in extremely cruel ways. We know the incredibly high rates of broken bones that animals come to slaughterhouses with. Um, and the environmental destruction is on purpose. It's not an accident. Um, we know that if you design farms in these ways, and if you don't have a good way of dealing with the waste, it is going to equal water pollution and air pollution. It is not an accident. There's a company in America called Smithfield that had 7,000 violations of the Clean Water Act in one year. So if they'd had 10, we would say, not so good. If they'd had 100, we would say, that's really bad. Someone needs to keep an eye on Smithfield. But 7,000 is a business plan. There is, someone's on a chalkboard saying, how many of these can we get away with? Let's do that number. You know, Let's do 7,000 because we let them get away with it. Yeah. So we're trashing the planet and we're committing unspeakable violence to animals that you don't have to be an animal lover to abhor. I'm not an animal lover. I don't even really like animals, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I like your dog. <laughs> I like my dog less every day. Uh, you know, the first, the first stop that I did for my research was to a place called Farm Sanctuary where rescued pigs and chickens get to go to live out their, you know, natural lives. And... Um, I thought, oh, I should go there first and just kind of spend some time with these animals and look into their eyes and <laughs> commune with them, whatever. And after about 15 minutes, I was totally ready to go. I just <laughs> had enough. And the guy who runs the place was like, oh, come on, you can pet, pet this Willie, whatever this guy's name is. And I was like, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't want to name them. I didn't want to knit sweaters for them. I didn't want to bring one home. And yet, there are other things that I didn't want to do. Like I didn't want to put a pregnant animal in a cage so small it can't turn around. I didn't want to pack 12 chickens in a cage so tight that each has less space than the cover of my book. It's just wrong. Right. I didn't need a veterinary scientist to explain to me why it was wrong. I didn't need a philosopher to explain to me why it's wrong, just like nobody here needs anyone to explain to them why it's wrong. You know, Cage-free and free-range eggs are the fastest growing sector in the food industry in America. In the entire country, red state, blue state, you know, rich, poor, black, white, religious, secular, the whole country. This is the food that people now want more than any other food. It's a food that does not taste better and is not better for you. And it costs more, sometimes significantly more. And people want it because we share these values, because we all know it's wrong. It's just self-evidently wrong. It's clearly wrong. Um, so the fact that we have this whole industry that depends that cannot exist without our ignorance, silence, or willful forgetfulness is astounding, especially when you um, think about it in terms of, of its scale.
And yet people, people often claim um, that you know, we need the system to feed the world. You know, we need the system to make food affordable. You know, we, we need this system so that we just, so it can feed everybody and you know, people just can't afford to buy organically um, farm products only. So what's your response to that? Well, we need this system to feed the world this amount of meat. That's true. Like if, if what we need is dollar hamburgers for everybody, then this is what we need. Um, to compare it to organic vegetables, it, there's no reason to. Why would you compare conventional meat to organic vegetables? What you should do is compare conventional meat to conventional vegetables. And a conventional vegetarian diet is less expensive. Um, for people who are on a tight budget, a vegetarian diet is simply a better way to eat. It also happens to be, generally speaking, healthier. Um, think about all the menus at every restaurant you've ever been to in your life. The cheapest thing is always the vegetarian option. It is true that, that um, meat from small and family farms is more expensive. And that's one reason that I'm sort of hesitant about getting too excited about it. There, there is an aspect of elitism in, 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 I think, celebrating too strongly that as an alternative when the fact is, truly most people can't afford it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But we should step back and say, why are we eating so much meat? You know, I don't mean that in the sense of, is it really good for us? What I mean is, why are we eating so much more meat now than we did in our recent past? Americans eat um, 180 times as much chicken per person as we did a century ago. And you, don't, you can't explain that difference by consumer preference. It's not that America fell in love with chicken. Um, what happened is, you know, as the techniques of factory farming changed, the kinds of foods we ate changed, and in response, the ways that we think about cooking, shopping, and eating changed. So, a chicken used to be bought probably whole. Um, probably it was roasted in an oven, probably with some vegetables, maybe served with a grain. It was almost certainly eaten at a table that was set, almost certainly eaten with silverware, almost certainly with other people. 180 times as much chicken is not that chicken. It's Chicken McNuggets and like McDonald's other chicken products and Burger King and KFC. And this is food that we're eating with one hand and we're almost always eating it alone. Um, we're often eating it walking. We're often eating it while driving. Um, would we say that meat is contributing something to our lives in those cases or taking something away? You know, I'm putting aside the health effects of eating cheap meat which are scary, to say the least. So I understand people who are very protective of their food cultures. I am as well, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I was in Paris not that long ago, and I've been lucky enough to go to Paris more or less every year for the last 10 years, and I've noticed a serious difference in the last 10 years in the number of McDonald's that are on the street. The number It used to be that you would see people carrying food home to cook, now you see people on the sidewalk carrying food that they're eating. Um, and, you know, it may be that we have to choose between values. You know, how do we compare the value of eating our grandmother's chicken and carrots with the value of understanding the moral of the stories she was trying to teach me when I was young? And what if these things are incompatible? You know, what if I have to say, you know, I think the moral was actually more important than this particular recipe. And it may be that as a French person, you have to you know, weigh the values of a Paris that is overtaken with $1 hamburgers as composed to um, Parisian cuisine that has 
considerably less meat, but still <coughs> involves like you know fine dining and slow food and um, and really celebrating all that a meal can offer. I mean, on the aspect of cost, the question, of course, is also um, first of all, why are these burgers so cheap? And actually, when we look at all the hidden costs, are they actually really cheap? I mean, if we factored in all the environmental damage, if we factored in all the sort of hidden costs that are ultimately subsidized by the tax buyer, is it really cheap meat or is it not, in fact, very expensive meat? Well, it's presented as the cheapest food that's ever been produced, when in fact it's the most expensive food that's ever been produced. It's just that all the costs are externalized. Um, you know, the thing that makes the conversation about meat so difficult is it's so distant and so abstract to us. Most of us aren't there when our food is being raised, aren't there when our food is being slaughtered, don't witness firsthand the environmental effects, and so on. Um, and so it becomes a conversation that's had. And we're left to do a lot of imagining. And our imagining is influenced by the stories that we hear and the images that we see. Um, so when we go to the cash register, we're presented with a dollar figure. But um, that doesn't correspond to the real cost of the food because there are enormous subsidies, farm subsidies, and the environmental destruction isn't calculated into the price, and neither is the human health cost, which is enormous. And of course, you can't quantify animal welfare. There's an environmental study that was done um, after my book came out. I would have loved to have included it, um, where a group tried to quantify the environmental costs of a $1 McDonald's hamburger, putting aside human health, putting aside animal welfare. And the number that they came up with was a little north of $200. It's like $203. Um, it was not a hypothetical number. It was not a little exercise in philosophy. It was number crunching. You know, this is what we're paying, or this is more likely what our kids and our grandkids will pay. So sometimes we leave a bad inheritance. Sometimes we leave things in worse, worse conditions than we found them. But you hope you're getting something really good in return. We're just not getting anything good in return. It's not worth it for that. You know, as I said, the Christmas ham, okay. Like the, whatever, Shabbat chicken, okay. The going to, you know, the north of Spain to go to this great restaurant for a once in a lifetime meal, okay. But not okay for KFC, not okay for McDonald's, not okay for airport meat, not okay for supermarket meat. We can't let those exceptions get us off the daily hook when we are getting ourselves nothing but the most fleeting little culinary pleasure and what we're giving up is so profound and can't be retrieved. Okay, so on that note, I think um, I would like to open the discussion um, to the floor. Before we do that, um, let me just say that um, you will have the opportunity also to buy the book, um, uh, which looks like this, buy the book um, outside and then Jonathan will stay here and will sign it. So if you want the book, you go outside first, buy the book, come back here, and then he will sign it for you. The stewards will guide you. Okay, so now, um, questions? Yeah. Yeah, uh, on that, 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 this is on, yeah, on that last point that you made, um, I'm just curious why, if your moral code is such that you don't think eating animals per se is wrong, why you are a vegetarian and why you don't have those exceptional meals. Um, and the second question I wanted to why, ask Why I don't have what? Why you don't have the exceptional meals that you just referred to. Uh, why do you not eat meat occasionally on special right, occasions right. that are uh. important to you? And the other question I wanted to ask briefly was uh, why in your book, which I, I very much uh, enjoyed reading, why 
in your book, and why also tonight, you haven't mentioned the dairy industry and the uh, inherent cruelty that um, is implicit there. So in, to your first question, why don't I have such exceptional meals? Um, I just don't feel a need for them, actually. When I'm being honest with myself and I reflect on indispensable uses of meat, I can't think of any. Um, there's, there are times when I, <laughs> there are times when I really, really enjoy the taste of meat, and there are meals when I look at the person, you know, I'm in a restaurant, and I look at the table next to me, and I think, man, that looks better than what I'm eating. I kind of wish I could eat that, but it doesn't break my heart. I don't go on and on about it. I don't lose sleep over it that night. You know, so what? So what? Um, so. I should also add, though, that it took me about 20 years to become a consistent vegetarian. So I don't mean to imply that it was easy for me. I just flipped the switch, and there it was. It did take me a long time. But right now, you know, the combination of knowing what I now know and also having had experiences with vegetarianism and figuring out how it could best be integrated into my life, I find it. I am being. I'm. I. I. I'm not saying this because I prefer to say it. I'm being honest with you. I find it effortless. I simply find it effortless. Which is a good segue into your next question about dairy. Dairy and eggs aren't in the book, or they're very, very only touched upon in the book. Really because it just wasn't in the scope of the book. I wanted to write something that um, was accessible, that was, I, I, I sacrificed a lot of comprehensiveness in the interest of trying to make something that was useful. Um, and my research actually didn't take me too deeply into dairy or eggs. What I can say is, what I know of them, um, they, are, they are precisely the same argument. I mean, in certain ways they're worse uh, in terms of animal welfare. Um, they're, you would not want to come back as an egg-laying hen. <laughs> you can say that for sure. Uh, you would be asking for the knife as soon as you came out of the egg. Um, I am not a consistent vegan. I think that veganism is a better way to be, and it's what I aspire to be, and it's something that I've been experimenting with, and when I do buy eggs or dairy, I only buy them from a farmer that I know in my neighborhood. Um, I do occasionally eat them out. I wish I didn't. Um, so how do I explain this? I explain it as hypocrisy. Um, I know that it's the right thing to do, and yet I'm having a hard time doing it. Um, vegetarianism I find to be effortless. My experiments with veganism have been more difficult. Now I know some vegan is going to come up to me later and tell me that it's the easiest thing in the world. I can tell that. It's the yes. easiest thing in the world. <laughs> I, I believe such people. I mean, I know that there are people who don't believe me when I say that vegetarianism is effortless. Obviously it's different for each person. I hope that should we meet again in the future that I would say that I am a vegan because as I said, it's, it's, it's a better reflection of my values. But um, I am more comfortable occupying this hypocritical middle space or aspirational space than um, just saying, you know what? There's no fucking way I'm going to give up dairy and eggs. So let's go out for burgers. Okay, other questions? It was? That's great to hear. I'm really happy to hear that. Sometimes people will come up to me at, at, you know, after reading and say, your book made me vegan. And I'll say, really? It didn't make me one. <laughs> but, you know. Well, I mean, the arguments are all there, right? What's that? The yeah, of course they're all there. I don't have a... 
There's no <laughs> refutation. There's nothing to say. It's just that I find it difficult. I could lie to you. I could tell you I'm a vegan. You would believe me, you know? Uh, but I think that it's actually productive to share like our difficulties with this and to admit that we are not just purely rational beings, that we crave certain foods and we crave convenience. And, you know, I like the feeling of being able to go out to most restaurants and, and order something. And uh, <laughs> now I'm going to get it again from another vegan. I just know it. But, um, you know, it's great to live in 2011. It's, it's better to live now than at probably any moment in human history. But the greatness comes with a lot of responsibilities. And some people think about this issue and say, you know what, if I start thinking about this, I'm going to have to think about that. And if I think about that, I'm going to have to think about that. And soon I'm just going to be an erotic person with no like, um, spontaneity or, or no pleasure in my life. Well, it may be true that we have additional things to be concerned about you know, than our parents or our grandparents did. But the goal in life isn't to care about as few things as possible. The goal in life is actually to care about as many things as possible, as possible, knowing that possible doesn't mean everything. So it's a balance that I have not struck, but you know, aspire to strike. Okay, other questions? There's some up there. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, can you hear me? No, sorry. Yeah, I think there's a microphone coming. <laughs> Um, I hope you take this more morally and theoretically than personally, but you mentioned that you have children, and I was wondering how you raise them in terms of food and vegetarianism and how you might sort of balance, you know, your goal as a parent to give them an ethical code versus their sort of right to make their own choices. Well, a five-year-old has no right to make his own choices. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a, what, 16-year-old? Is that about when they start to, anyway. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have a strong desire to make his own choices. He has a desire to feel like protected and secure and in a consistent and loving environment. Um, we are raising them as vegetarians. We have two kids. And it's been working out really fantastically well so far. Um, they're massive. I mean, they're the biggest kids in their class. Never ever get sick. Maybe it's coincidental. Maybe it's not. I have no idea. Um, it is far easier to explain to a child why you wouldn't eat meat than why you would eat meat. That doesn't have anything to do with the rightness or wrongness of eating meat. It has to do with the other stories that we tell children about what it means to be a kind person in the world, what it means to be a human. Um, I read my kids, what do you think, nine out of ten stories that I read my kids have animals for heroes, which imply some kind of animal experience or feeling. Obviously it's anthropomorphism, but, you know, it's a story that they're being told. They have stuffed animals that they're handed when they cry. We have a dog, and they know that we treat the dog in certain ways, that we treat it with respect. We don't treat it like a human, but we do treat it like a dog. Um, will there come a time when my kids want to eat meat? I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, they're unusual. This is the first generation, really, um, or the first, you know, the, the this is, the, this is the first generation where there are a lot of young people who are being raised as vegetarians rather than have come into vegetarianism. And I assume it will be much, much easier for them because they won't have a kind of built-in taste for it. My son smells meat all the time. And it doesn't, it just does nothing to him. It doesn't attract him, doesn't repulse him, nothing. Um, 
you know, his, his, the way he talks about it, which is actually not really the way I talk about it, is I really like animals, so why would I kill them? You know, if I didn't have to. Maybe I have to one day in certain situations, but I, I don't have to for food, so why would I? And that's it. He's, uh, my older one is um, obsessed with David Attenborough, like strongly, maybe even to a to, to great an extent. Uh, and he wrote him a letter. <laughs> and he first explained why he likes him so much and how much he would like to have his job when David Attenborough is done. Um, and, um, and he said, oh, by the way, I'm a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian because, like you, I really love animals and I love nature. Um, and I don't want to kill them if it's not necessary. Are you a vegetarian? And Attenborough actually wrote back. And he, di he didn't answer the question. But... Um, <laughs> I love his way of thinking about it. I even love the naivete. I love the idealism and the kind of romance of it. You know, it's something that we are sanded down as we get older and we're discouraged from being idealistic in those ways. And we have, we have to be, I mean, thank goodness. But it's nice to come into contact with that again. So should he one day want to eat meat, I'm not going to stop him from eating meat. I don't think that's actually a good way to... Um, accomplish all that much of anything. I would be open with him about why we do what we do. We already are open with him. And why I think eating meat is not a choice that I would make. But um, my goal is not to produce a vegetarian. My goal is to produce, I mean to produce, my goal is to <laughs> play a role in helping to shape a person who recognizes the choices in front of him and makes choices that reflect his values when possible. That was the moral of my grandmother's story, and it's the moral of this book. So um, we'll see what happens. I am, I'm curious. I mean, it's not going to be a painless experience. He will go to birthday parties where all of the other kids are eating a food that he doesn't eat, and that's not painless. You know, even if it's the right thing to do, it's not painless. Um, yeah, question in the back there. Hello. Hello, nice to have you here. Uh, <clears throat> it's just like a comment uh, of my own experience. I always when I talk uh, about meat with people that actually eat meat, uh, they, there are many people that just like the meat really well done because if it's not, they feel kind of, you know what I mean, like kind of disgusted or something. Or if you talk about like, would you be brave enough to kill an animal or something like that? And they usually say, if I had to do that, I wouldn't eat it. So it's something like, uh, something about the human mind that's really profound here. And I don't know if that actually says anything. You know, like I don't, you know, a lot of things in life are unpleasant, but, um, have you ever seen a childbirth? <laughs> I mean, it's a special kind of thing to see. And uh, you might not want to become um, an OB uh, after an obstetrician, after watching a childbirth. It might just be too much for you, like too much blood, too intense, um, too extreme. That doesn't mean that you don't love babies or the idea that humans are brought into the world in a medical setting, let's say. Um, so, 
people put a lot of emphasis on this question, could you do it? You know, I don't need to go kill a person to have a good sense of whether or not it's right to murder people. You know, maybe I could do it. I bet I could do it if I had to. Um, some people in particular. But uh, it doesn't prove anything. I think there's a kind of vanity, actually, in exploring your own re responses to those situations rather than, I think it's actually sentimental. You know, people accuse vegetarians of being sentimental because they care about animals. Um, well, what is sentimentality? Sentimentality is when we put our emotions above our reason, above what we know to be true. To me, vegetarianism is just a straightforward engagement with the world. Here's what the world is. Here's how it works. You know, there's a globe of finite size. There's an increasing human population. People want to eat a ton of meat. Here's how it's done. And here what, here's what the effects are on the environment. Here's what the effects are on animals. I don't want to do that, so I'll say no to it. That, to me, is very rational. It's very cool-headed, level-headed. Someone who says, yeah, but I love, I love burgers. That, to me, is sentimental. And I think there's a sentimentality also in exploring your own ability to you know, slice a chicken's neck as if that were to prove something about a world in which animals are slaughtered by the tens of thousands by, you know, in automated ways, no humans ever come near them. Um, you know, it has nothing in the world. If one really wanted to experience firsthand where meat comes from, you wouldn't shoot it down an animal with a bow and arrow, and you wouldn't slaughter it yourself. You would go to a factory farm. You know, that's how you know what meat really is. And I would encourage people to do that. It's, it's, it, it, you have to be much more macho to stomach that than to... Um, slaughter an animal yourself. Okay, um, I think, well, we have a lot of questions, but here, no. Okay, then there. Excuse me. Hello, um, I was just wondering, um, because I know there's a lot of overlap with um, how people live their lives beyond what they eat, how they dress, um, what sort of vehicle they drive, um, and I was just wondering, just kind of specifically, do you think someone can be a vegetarian and wear fur? Well, I know it's a kind of specific question, but I, I just feel that there's a lot of controversy about people who wear fur and PETA. I think we have to move away from trying so hard to define identities and, and think instead about what it is we're trying to achieve. You know, you, are you a vegetarian who eats fish? Are you a lacto-ovo vegetarian? Are you a this or that? You know, the challenge isn't to be a perfectly consistent identity. The challenge is to live in a way that better reflects your values. You know, think about environmentalism. Are you an environmentalist? If I were to ask you that, what would you say? Are you an environmentalist? Really, are you environment? You think so. How could you not know? Are you or aren't you? I mean... <laughs> So maybe you would say, I try, or I'm concerned? I'm concerned. Okay, that's a great way to think about it. Like, who is an environmentalist? Where do we draw the line? We don't ask that question anymore because it doesn't make sense. You know, I turn off lights when I leave a room. I don't leave a car idling. Um, I don't drive unless I have to. I would always prefer to walk or take public transportation. And yet I flew here from New York. And I know that in terms of transportation, that's about you know, as bad as it gets. 
But I didn't get off the plane, throw my hands in the air, call my wife and say, turn on the lights, turn on the car, in fact, drive the car. That's stupid. Because what I am is somebody who's concerned about the environment. Um, I've met a lot of former vegetarians. You probably have too. And many of them have stories like, I was a vegetarian for six years and then I found myself in a airport and the only thing that was open was this restaurant and the only thing they had at that hour was chicken and I was like famished, my hands were shaking, I was going pale, I was starting to think about my mother and I <laughs> ate this chicken. And that was the end of my vegetarianism. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. That's like me saying, I'm, a, I'm an honest person, but one day, uh, you know, my wife came down the stairs and asked me if, if, if she looked nice in that dress, and I said yes, and so now I tell lies at every available opportunity. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, or rather, it only makes sense if we've given ourselves but two options. I'm a vegetarian, or I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian, if I don't wear fur, or maybe it's okay if I do wear fur. The strictness of these definitions is not important. Not only that, it's, I think it's really destructive because it, it creates less and less space for people to occupy or to feel safe occupying. So instead, we should think, you know, I'm somebody who tries to eat less meat. I'm concerned with the environment. I'm concerned about animal welfare. I'm concerned about industrial food. So I am somebody who eats as little meat as possible, and for me, that, that's none. I don't eat any at all. But the way I think about it is as I've reduced my meat consumption to zero. Hello. Um, I'm interested in that analogy about not killing an animal, you know, the one that meets it, the one that we give, but instead visiting a, a, a factory, an abattoir. Um, I understand it's actually very difficult to visit abattoirs and you have to get licenses and they do their best to keep people away. I wonder if you've experienced it as being almost impossible to get in. Oh, I have a book you should read. Um, <laughs> seriously, you should buy a copy. Seriously. When's it out in paperback, Jonathan? What do you think we're here for? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Back. I, I thought that was a hardback. Okay, I'll, I'll read it, I promise. Um, books also, <laughs> books come in different formats. So if you wanted like an e-book in addition to a paperback book, I don't know, maybe you like audio books, you could wait for the film, it's up to you. Um, really, do you have a film deal on it? No. <laughs> you could wait a very long time for the film. That's what I was going to say. I'll buy it in paperback and read it. Okay. All right. Yeah, just on that note, just to uh, repeat that again, I just got the notice. Tell me to say that again. You can buy the book today <laughs> after this event outside. The queue will also be outside, and then you can come back in here for a signing. Uh, okay, but basically, you, you recommend that people visit abattoirs because I was just thinking I recommend what would that happen. They try. They won't be able to. You won't be able to. Um, I went to great great lengths to visit slaughterhouses and to visit farms. I wrote dozens of letters. I made dozens of phone calls. And I was met either with silence or um, aggression, actually. I was just thinking it would be a really good exercise if everyone who's in the audience tonight tried to find an abattoir and tried to write and go and visit. Well, I, I often suggest that to audiences. Even before an abattoir, try to just find a farm. I mean, you can sort of kind of understand why a slaughterhouse might be more resistant. We think of the real violence and gore happening in slaughterhouses and also the danger, actually. I mean, there's, slaughterhouses are quite dangerous places. But why shouldn't you be able to visit a farm? I mean, that, I would think, would go without saying. But you will have no luck 
visiting a farm. So what I did, and I recount this in my book, is I went around with um, animal activists and went in the middle of the night and you know broke into these places. Um, and we did this many times. And in the course of each little adventure, there was always a moment when I would sort of pull back mentally and think, what the hell is going on? I just can't believe this. I cannot believe I'm wearing black. I had, um, I mean, I can believe that, but that I had these, um, it was disposable clothing. I had to throw my, away my clothing afterwards because of, because of risks of getting Campylobacter or a number of other diseases, but that's another point. Um, I had these surgical booties over my shoes. I had a blowhorn. I had um, water, which it was to feed animals in case cops would come in, because there's a legal loophole that says if an animal doesn't have enough food or water, you're allowed to trespass, actually, to give it food and water. Um, I had to, we had to cut a barbed wire fence. We um, knew that often they will leave um, dogs or sometimes even bulls unleashed. This was to visit farms? This was to visit farms. That's my point. This is to visit the place that the food that we eat comes from and the food that we give to our loved ones, to our kids. I was not visiting nightmare farms. I did, I did not do research to find out which are the worst farms. I'm going to go try to document them. I just went to big farms, just any old farm. And, and really, don't believe me. Try to do this yourself. Now, one thing, though, I have to say is this is distinct from family farms and small farms. If you are to meet a farmer at a um, farmer's market and say, can I go to your farm? That farmer will say yes, almost always, because they're proud of what they do and they have nothing to hide. It's not to say that what they do is, is without cruelty, because it's not really. Um, it's not without violence, but it's, it involves as little cruelty and violence as could really fairly be expected. But these big farms, you'll have no luck. I mean, there's no industry except for the military that's as secretive. In America, after, 2000, after September 11th, there was an um, Animal Terrorism Act passed, which made trespassing onto a farm equivalent to an act of domestic terrorism, as opposed to civil trespassing. So, um, you know, what would be the most generous interpretation of that law? Um, I think the law was actually made by, the, um, by agribusiness. But the generous interpretation is that the government was afraid that a terrorist would somehow infiltrate the food supply oh, and yeah. poison Americans and maybe even poison the environment. But the Americans are doing that already themselves, right? Well, <laughs> not that the English are so good, by the way. But uh, 80 million Americans get food poisoning every year. And the Center for Disease Control has said that animal agriculture is the prime culprit, even if we're getting it from spinach. You know, e spinach does not produce the E. coli. It's waste runoff from factory farms. So 80 million Americans getting sick every year. One of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet, contributing more greenhouse gases than everything else put together. No terrorist is that ambitious, and no terrorist could be that successful. Um, so, you know, perhaps there should be an Animal Terrorism Act, but perhaps it shouldn't be consumers that are the ones treated like terrorists, but instead the people who are designing these systems where the cruelty and destruction are intentional. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I just came in a few minutes ago, so you might have answered my question already. Um, I have two questions, Why did you actually. ask the person next to you? <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, my first question, I remember from your book um, that you had this uh, dilemma whether you would raise your children 
in a vegetarian... It already came, did it? Yeah, okay. That has been answered, so I think... I'll try my second one then, if I may. Okay. Um, you write about American uh, factory farming in your book. Uh, do you know any or a lot about European uh, farming, how the conditions are there, uh, if it's as bad as it is in the U.S., etc.? I do know a fair bit about it. Um, it is not as bad as it is in America, but it is not so much better that any peace should be found in it. You know, in America, 99% of the animals come from factory farms. In Germany, it's about 95%. Um, the numbers just happen to be very available for Germany in a way that they're not for a lot of other countries. In England, people say it's around 90% probably. Maybe 90% makes you feel great. Maybe it makes you feel terrible. It's up to you. One thing we can say is that if um, animal cruelty matters to you, and if global warming matters to you, it doesn't actually matter that much whether it's happening in England or across the border. You know, its effects are going to be felt by you, or at least in the case of animal welfare, felt by your conscience. So it's clearly a global problem, and it's becoming more and more of a global problem as these farming techniques are pushed into Eastern Europe and China and India, and as the Chinese and Indians are now beginning to eat like Americans, um, and as Europeans are increasingly, I mean, it's almost complete, but as, as this process of eating like Americans is completed, where a meal is something that has a plate, two-thirds of which are covered with a piece of meat. If the Chinese and Indians eat like Americans and everything else in the world holds constant, if not another baby is born, we'll have to factory farm twice as many animals, 100 billion instead of 50 billion. So this is, it was an American invention, but it's a global problem. Sorry? Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, next one, okay. <laughs> um, I think there and then you're the next up there, up there okay? Second in line. <laughs> sorry. Uh, hi. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, um, the way that we produce and consume meat in the West is having uh, catastrophic effects in the third world. Could you say a bit more about that, about the... Uh, the effects it's having? Well, when people talk about the mowing of the rainforests, for example, um, the destruction of the rainforests, it is to feed an American appetite for cheap meat. Um, it's, some of it is for um, putting animals on pasture, and an awful lot of it is growing so uh, soy and, and some corn for animals that Americans will eat. So, you know, vegetarians are sometimes made fun of as, because they eat tofu. 99% um, of the world's soy crop is fed to livestock. So nobody eats tofu like a meat eater eats tofu. <laughs> soy and corn are foods that a cow does not naturally digest. Grass, of course, is a food that cows naturally digest. As it turns out, humans do naturally digest corn and soy and don't naturally digest, digest corn. So, oh, excuse me, grass. So it would seem that we've got the balance completely wrong. And this points to so the ultimate truth about factory farming, which is it's the perfect perversion of nature. Um, factory farming, which is very hard to define because it's not any specific set of practices so much as a mindset, basically boils down to the idea that nature is an obstacle to be overcome. You know, for all of human history until about 1920, farmers looked to nature as a guide because nature has set up these incredibly elegant systems which work very, very well, and, and very efficiently, too. Um, now, farmers 
want to outdo nature. And the conclusions that farmers have reached are very strange. You know, that a, a sick animal would be better than a healthy animal. That feeding foods to an animal that it doesn't naturally digest would be better than feeding foods to an animal that it does naturally digest. That raising an animal without sunlight is better than raising an animal with sunlight. That removing parts of an animal that it naturally has is better than leaving an animal intact. That producing an animal that can't itself reproduce or can't reproduce sexually is better than an animal that can reproduce sexually. Um, and of course, that destroying the environment is better than leaving it in better shape than you found it, which is what farmers often did, often aspired to do and often did. So um, um, the third world has paid a huge price for this. In, in Africa, it's because of overfishing. Um, fishing, where the fish again all goes to Europe and to America, it's all exported and there's, they're left having to themselves import food um, because they're not able to, a system is set up where they're not able to consume the foods that they grow or South America or Eastern Europe now where American companies have gone in and destroyed resources that can't be replaced for what? Only for burgers, you know, not to solve the healthcare problem not to create peace in the Middle East, just for stupid cheap burgers that make us fat. I think we'll have, to, um, we're almost finished. We'll have the last question to the lady who has been waiting for ages, <laughs> to the person who's been waiting. And then um, we'll finish. Brief question, hopefully, brief answer. Uh, I'll do my best to be brief. Um, so I was, I was interested, you mentioned the word elitism in respect of uh, um, like family-owned farms, and you say it's, it's significantly more expensive, but it is accessible. Right? And I just wanted to generalize that question a bit, especially, so you talk about, you know, when you go to Paris and people are buying McDonald's food and they're eating it while they're, they're walking, right? And a lot of that is possibly just because people are poor, right? If you want cheap food um, and you don't have a lot of time um, to go shopping and to prepare food, you know, you have other responsibilities, and a lot of poor people have lots of responsibilities. Uh, that's the way you're going to. That's the way you're going to eat, and that's the most accessible way to eat. I mean, part of part of the cost is obviously to do the subsidies, and that's by the by. But I mean, what are you going to? I mean, I know what you're going to say to people in our situation who have the time to come to lectures and probably wealthier than average and so on. But what did you say to people who maybe don't have those options? Well, if the question is, are there people in the world who have access to no food except for fast food and have no time except for eating food on the fly and who are, you know, not only grateful for but dependent on fast food, what would I say to them? I would say, you're lucky to have that fast food. I mean, there's, you know, what, what else can one say? We need to make sure that people aren't living in those situations. The answer to the problem is not excusing McDonald's but um, finding that situation inexcusable. Um, you know, we need to have more meals in schools, take pressure off of feeding kids, healthy meals. I think we should have home ec reintroduced into schools. I don't see why learning math is more important than learning food, you know, what, what foods are and how to cook them. We've completely lost our culture of shopping for food and cooking food. People find, most people, there are cases like you're describing, most people find time for the things that they want to find time for. People watch like between four and five hours of TV a day in America. 
poor people watch TV too. People find time to update their Facebook pages. People find time for their telephones. You know, we find time for the things that we want to find time for. I'm not saying this is true of everybody. And I'm not saying that everyone has the equal ability to change or equal responsibility to change. But, you know, we should think about ourselves in this room because here we are. And also make sure that we don't allow extreme cases to become the kind of depositories of our, of our conscience. You know? Just because there are people somewhere who have no choices does not get us off the hook for having choices. So um, we should start making good choices and then we should you know, do what we can to make sure that other people have better choices. Okay, on that note, um, please join me in thanking Jonathan.